An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's T, the number four, a.org. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast, an organization dedicated to supporting innovative policymakers and ideas. I love these men and women because they're bringing sanity to politics in an insane era. Check out newdealleaders.org ideas for policies you can bring to your community. I'm really excited to share my conversation with Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher with you today. Mayor Fisher is not only a great mayor, but he's a great human being. He brings the mind of an entrepreneur and the heart of a social worker to his work. Mayors from around the country look to him for ideas on performance management and just plain inspiration. He's a New Deal leader and an American you should hear from. Mayor Fisher, first, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Yeah, good to be with you, Ryan. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about your path into politics. You did, you, you're not one of those people who came out of high school or college and started running for office. You built a career in the private sector and then moved into the public sector. What drew you to politics and, um, and how did you get there? Well, I was always fascinated about how to build high-performance entities, uh, whether it was sports teams or in the business sector. And I was fortunate to be an entrepreneur at an early age, almost went bankrupt twice. Uh, but what I learned during that process allowed a partner and I to invent a product, beverage, and ice dispensing machines that now you see everywhere. And as that company started scaling, I had to really think about how can we make this a bigger company because of the demand for our product and consistently deliver excellent services and build excellent products. So this was around the time of the total quality movement. So I learned how to build high-performance companies, you know, around theories of behavior and psychology and theories of learning and all this type of thing. And I always I came to the conclusion that the purpose of a company is a platform for human potential to flourish. And so I've been involved with manufacturing companies, software companies, medical device companies. And I did a lot of public uh, or community volunteer work at the same time on various boards. And I was fascinated by a concept of can you uh, create a city where the city is a platform for human potential to flourish? And where can you do the most amount of good? So after uh, we exited the company in the late 1990s, I was in a position where I was pretty flexible on what I can do. And I, I believe people are born to make the world a better place. So I wanted to try to position myself to be in a place like that. And so I thought running for office could do that because you have large budgets, large amounts of people to work with. And if you could organize those responsibilities in a, in a fashion such that people overall could be better, what a better way to spend your time than that. So that's what attracted me to public service. And, you know, there's there's folks who talk about running government like a business. Can you talk about the, the benefits that, that you've had bringing business skills and interests into government and then the differences you see uh, that the public should be aware of? I say to be a good mayor, you have to have the head of a chief executive officer, but the heart of a social worker. Because the difference of in being a mayor is that you don't, unlike a CEO, you don't get to select your employees or your suppliers. Whoever shows up in your city, they're on your team. And so you have the full bell curve of life. 
you know, with all of its beauty and all of its challenges. So you have to then look at, okay, how do you develop all these folks together? So there's quite a bit of similarity in terms of efficiency of the daily work of a city government uh, in terms of, uh, you know, government is basically a service business. So how do you optimize each one of those functional areas to be the best in the world at what they do? But then I choose to see the opportunity of being mayor as much more than just delivering city services. How do you develop the culture of a city so it's a place of uh, compassion and kindness where people recognize the interdependence that we have on each other and lift each other up? And then how do we have cities as uh, places of innovation as well so that we expand opportunities so that people can realize more human potential than maybe they thought that ever they existed before. And in the midst of all that, obviously, economic opportunity is being created so that you're growing as a city and firmly looking toward the future in a global, rapidly changing world. And you mentioned the compassion, and this is something that uh, you've you've really brought forward. And it you can imagine that a compassionate city project could come out of a place like like where I'm from, Santa Cruz or Santa Monica. Um, but to have it come out of Louisville and to have it come out from a, a, a mayor who, with a business background, talk about why compassion has been such a keystone for you. You know, when I look at our city, I think it was a big part of uh, me growing up to have this ethos. Uh, Muhammad Ali is from Louisville. So yes, he was the uh, athlete of the century uh, for Sports Illustrated in the 20th century, but then he changed his platform to be the world's greatest humanitarian. Uh, Thomas Merton had his epiphany in 1958 in Louisville where he came up with the notion of interconnectedness and people walking around shining like the sun. Uh, We have a very dynamic interfaith uh, presence in Louisville as well. So when I was... uh, after I won the race for mayor and my first speech to the city at the inauguration, I looked at it as if it was the first time I was coming into a company and talking to our employees. And I wanted to make sure that people knew how uh, they could expect consistency from me in terms of the decisions the city would be being made. And that was we were going to be a city of lifelong learning, uh, an even healthier city, and an even more compassionate city. And people kind of said, compassion, that sounds soft. And I said, well, my experience is it's harder for people to be compassionate and care about each other and lift each other up than it is to be angry or cynical or, or divisive. Uh, so we went to work on that. And, and I defined compassion as respect for each and every citizen so their full human potential is flourishing or shining like the sun, as Thomas Merton would say. So then the question becomes, because nobody disagrees with this, Republican, Democrat, whomever, But then the question becomes is, how do you actualize the value of compassion? So we've done that in our public school system through the Compassionate Schools Project, which is designed to accelerate brain development of our youngest citizens. Because when you take a look at the achievement gap that happens with six-year-olds that are showing up at kindergarten, our most advantaged kids are three years ahead of our least resourced kids. A lot of that has to do with being born in situations of trauma, lack of brain development. So our Compassionate Schools Project accelerates that brain development, but also then teaches kids how to have self-love so they can have empathy for others, uh, teaches nutrition and wellness. So it's ways that you can actualize compassion uh, through education. You can do it through your built environment strategies. We do that through our healthcare strategies as well. And we formed a really 
nice, I think, strategic partnership with the Dalai Lama. You know, he is the Buddha of compassion. So I think he and his team are fascinated that a city is trying to bring this issue alive. Look, th- these are human values, right, uh, that are compassion, kindness, and love. We lead with those, and then other differences are secondary. By that I mean uh, racial differences, political differences. We've had 45 cities visit Louisville to benchmark the work that we're doing around compassion. So there's clearly a lot of interest in both American cities and cities around the world to kind of get back to the basics of making sure that we're all interconnected and interdependent and away from division and hatred. When you do this work, uh, we're living in in an era where politics is like a blood sport, especially at the federal level, where people get rewarded for uh, divisiveness and get rewarded for attacking others. Have you... How have you been able to sort of try to stop those forces from coming into the local politics level um, through either the Compassion City Project or through other projects? Well, I'm coming off an election three weeks ago, and I had an opponent that used kind of fear and division uh, as her strategy, and she was roundly rejected by our city. Our city says basically the message was keep doing more of what you're doing more compassion, more equity, more innovation, more globalization. So I believe that if you put these issues forward as human values and then you deliver the economic results for a city and then the functional results of city government, people are understanding this is not an either-or. We can actualize ourselves as human beings while the economy grows, while our education outcome grows, and they're one and the same. So I think it's kind of redefining what we can do and reminding people that as human beings we have this capacity and you know love is always going to beat hate you know compassion is always going to beat division the forces of evil might have a short-term win but you never see any great entity whether it's been a national entity a sport team or company whose primary uh, uh, strength is hatred that's, we know that. So we've got to sometimes kind of walk back from the brink and remind us as human beings that we're much better than that. And I think that's the role not just of political leaders, but all leaders in society. Has there been a time where uh, you felt like this approach to compassion has changed you and your leadership or the way the city has reacted um, to, to this call for action? Has, has it... Uh, do you feel like a different person having launched this this project? Yeah, my most um, human moments are when there's some type of extraordinary tragedy. It could be on an individual level uh, where you're dealing with people that have had something really bad happen to them. And what I re- so appreciate about this job that I have is that it exposes me to you know the highest heights of beauty, but then some of the lowest levels of despair at the same time. So by putting yourself in those positions and trying to practice uh, empathy and compassion and hope at the same time, it, it stretches your consciousness and hopefully then your ability to do good. I think that's why we're all on the face of the earth is to do more good. So the point I'm trying to make here is this If you believe in compassion and if you believe we're interdependent, that pushes you to experience things that you maybe shied away from before. But you now look at those opportunities not as 
not in a way that is, uh, you say, well, I shouldn't do that. It's an exciting opportunity to grow. And in that process, everybody that's in that grows together. And so if we can relate to each other from a human standpoint and people see that first and foremost, I care about you as a human being. Let's, let's start with that as the opportunity for us to grow a relationship with. Good things come out of that. Hey, everyone. We're taking this show on the road to the TomTom Civic Innovation Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia on April 10th. It's an amazing gathering of leaders, and we'll be talking to a few of them. Go to TomTomFest.com for more information. If you like what you're hearing and what these leaders are doing, do me a favor. Please tell your friends about An Honorable Profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Can you talk about some of your work? You talked about building an inclusive economy and seeing growth shared across your community. Some of the work you've done to help uh, lower-income communities or folks who have been disenfranchised, even folks leaving the the prison system uh, to, to experience both uh, economic opportunity, but it's also being valued. Uh, yeah. No, I realize what we've been talking about some, so far. Some people might say it sounds pretty soft. Uh, you got to be good at the soft stuff so you can get the hard results. Louisville's gone through an a, a incredible economic renaissance. We've had $13 billion in capital investment in our city just in the last couple of years. 80,000 new jobs, 2,700 new businesses, 20,000 people work themselves out of poverty into the middle class. So it's not just the number of jobs you're creating, it's also the wages associated with those jobs. So it's the upskilling in those areas. If you have incentives, it's around higher, uh, higher paying jobs. So that the signals that you're sending to the marketplace are, include, you know, we value lifelong learning and the skills that come with that. We value the higher paying jobs that come with that as well. Uh, we're an innovative city, we're a global city. Those type of characteristics, advanced industry characteristics, pay more as well. So it's making sure that people's psyche is kind of firmly launched on who we are and where we're going as a city. And can you talk about some of the job training programs that you've uh, instituted in order to, to help people find a place in that, in that growth or with those new opportunities? Yeah, let's talk about two kind of very different ones, but both effective. Uh, our Code Louisville program was some Department of Labor money, relatively uh, small dollars, but we're trying to you know, significantly upscale the tech, collective tech ability of our city like every city is doing right now. Uh, we've had 2,000 people enroll, 1,000 graduate, 300 people uh, get jobs in the neighborhood of $50,000 a year. They were making around 35 before, and this was everybody from a 17-year-old to an octogenarian uh, to a GED to a PhD. So open enrollment after you meet certain qualifications, average cost per graduate, 600 bucks. Think about that versus $10,000 for uh, a boot camp. Uh, now, it's different level of skill, but still it shows you you can get a lot of results for not that much money. Uh, that's called Code Louisville. Now, we're in, we've just entered into a new program three months ago called Thrive, and Thrive is targeted at young men that are coming out of prison or jail that we feel have the uh, capacity to reintegrate and skill up to be highly uh, productive citizens. A lot of these young guys didn't grow up in environments that really trained them to be a citizen nor know how to participate in society or the economy as most of us define it. Uh, recidivism rates 
for our cities are sometimes 30 to 70 percent. Cost 25 to 30 thousand dollars to incarcerate someone for a year. Wouldn't it be smart for us to try different ways so people don't go back to jail? So the Thrive Fellowship pays a thousand dollar a month stipend uh, for 18 months, provides internship opportunities, and skills people up not just in a traditional business sense with soft skills and hard skills but also train, trains people on how government operates what's it what's it mean to be a citizen what's a bigger picture just outside of your individual world so i'm really hopeful what this is going to demonstrate is by uh, being thoughtful about re-entry and investing in people that are re-entering the return on investment to that is significantly better than putting someone back in into jail, and then of course the moral benefits from it, and what it says to us about how we value us as human beings, regardless of the situation that you were born into or come out or come into, are, it's very important for us as a society to look at these in different ways. With the changes that we're seeing in the global economy, with the way that people work, what do you think is the role for cities in this? And then what do you see as the what kind of leadership do we need coming out of Washington to facilitate, you know, making this transition easier? Well, one of the big challenges that we have as a country right now is that there's just too big a gap between the people that are really doing well and the people that are struggling. And some people say it's the top 1%. It's really like the top 20% of our country are doing fine. And I'm say from a financial standpoint. Uh, but this notion that we're the richest country in the world and people, you know, thump their chest over that, I really think we have to question that. Uh, from a financial sense, we are. But when you take a look at the basic issues around, does everybody have stable housing? Does everybody have food security, healthcare security? Is our education system designed in a way that allows each individual to flourish? These are areas where we've got so much work to do. So we need kind of a, a an introspection, if you will, uh, from for our, for our country, driven by leaders that are prompting us to think. Good leaders are truth-tellers. Right now, the truth is our country is struggling in some areas in, in ways that are not conducive to long-term benefit of everybody in our country. And I think that's the strength of our democracy, is that if you think that if I work hard and follow the rules, I've got a chance at success. That belief is gone for a big part of our society right now. So we have to recenter ourselves on that because I believe from a demographic standpoint, our country, my city, we are placed in a position compared to the rest of the world because of our diversity, that we can excel in new ways in, term, in terms of showing how governments and people can do good things together. And this notion that government is evil, that's wrong. I mean, we have, you don't want too much government, but government organizes our responsibilities with each other around a moral framework that gives everybody a, a fair shot to move ahead. So I think we've got to recenter ourselves around that. And then we have to recognize this system redevelopment that we need to do. For instance, our education system is, was designed around a slow-moving, stable family uh, environment of 50 to 80 years ago. That's changed. So our education system needs to change with that. So it's focused on, let's say, whole child development in school and out of school, because not every family is, is providing those type of supports. So we've got the money to do it. 
We just need kind of the national consciousness reawakening and leadership to say we're going to work on this together. So I'm optimistic, Ryan, that it's going to happen. I don't know how long it's going to take and how much pain and suffering it's going to take. I hope not too much because our people will not allow it not to happen because what history shows us is when too many people with too few resources, they're not going to take it forever, right? And so uh, some society then comes to a fracturing point. Right. I, I firmly believe and pray that we as a country are smart enough to get to that point. And do you think it's going to come at the at the federal level, at the state level, at the city level? Like where, which area of government is going to be nimble enough and to rebuild that trust and to develop policies for this future economy? Well, not just because I'm a mayor, but right. the, uh, you know, all the polling shows you the closer you get to the local level, the more people trust their elected officials. Because, one, you have to live with your people. And so if you're any good at all, you have to be responsive to what their needs are. And, and that creates a trust loop that says, okay, we can do this. Let's do more together. Those trusts leads to relationships, which leads to opportunities for us to uh, create more good things for our people. The challenge is, though, is that the funds flow. You know, the big money's at the federal government, then the state level. And then depending what you have at the city level, it tends to get less and less. And many cities don't have revenue-generating opportunities to do additional things that their citizens want them to do. But there is no question it happens at the city level because it's a much more manageable level. Like our city is about 800,000 people. So we're big enough to be internationally relevant, but we're small and nimble enough to get stuff done and experiment with different programs. So could be the Compassionate Schools program that what we're trying to demonstrate is this is a way for innovative breakthrough in education. And if, if in fact, we demonstrate that because it's a scientific program that we're running on top of it to measure it, then shouldn't we implement that all across the country? You know, so cities are the laboratories, states are the laboratories for so many of these issues. And then hopefully when we're ready to galvanize nationally around these, we can see all these different best practices out there. That makes a lot of sense. So you just won your uh, you just won your reelection overwhelmingly. Uh, you're going into what will be your last term uh, as mayor of Louisville. What do what do you see as on the horizon over the next four years that you're going to be focusing your efforts on? Well, there are two primary reasons why uh, I ran for the third term. One is to continue the economic momentum and the built environment momentum of our city, and that's that's easy for people to see that. Uh, but more importantly is to build them on the momentum that we have uh, with building the human potential of our people. And specifically, I'm talking about a program we call Cradle to Career and Louisville Promise. So this is taking on that issue that we spoke about earlier, about the lack of resources that too many of our young kids don't have just because of the situation they were born into. So addressing those type of gaps is critical for our success as a country and for our city as well. So it deals with uh, talking about the whole child, the physical and mental health of the child, the social and emotional learning of that child, and making sure that resources are applied there just like they would be applied in a wealthy family with resources that knows how to raise a child. I believe it's not a morally... Uh, right that just because I'm born at this street address and this zip code and you're born in this street address at a zip code that your future looks really bright, let's say as a, as a white male. Uh, 
the ovarian lottery that uh, yeah. that Warren Buffett talks about. Yeah, so some people say from a moral standpoint they get that. If people don't understand it morally, then I'll talk about economic development. The demographics of our country are changing such that it's going to be a majority non-white country at some time in the next couple of decades. Our, our communities of color have achievement gaps compared to our white and Asian communities. So wouldn't it behoove us to close those achievement gaps so that we're ready to compete economically? So some people understand that. And the third issue is if you don't get the moral or economic aspect, what about the public safety aspect of it? When you take a look at second world countries, developing countries, there's public safety issues associated with this. So however you come into this argument, it's important that we come into it and work on it. For yourself, are you are you thinking about, uh, they call it higher office, although I would argue that that mayor is the highest office in the land. Um, are you thinking about taking your ideas to other levels of government? What's been funny to me, Ryan, about this, and we met probably what, five or six years ago, uh, in this industry of politics, you meet a bunch of folks that they've been running for like president of their class since they were 10 years old. I never really thought about getting into this till about uh, 10 years ago. And I must say, it is the most interesting kind of occupation I've ever had because of all the different experiences and skills that it requires to be successful at. So, and I've always thought that if you work hard and you've got an open mind and an open heart, good things happen for you. So right now, I mean, I'm just focused on uh, creating the best Louisville that we can so that it can be seen as kind of an uh, incubator of good ideas. And uh, so I've got four more years to do that and, uh, you know, hope to have some options out of that. I'll have another chapter or two left in my life, and I hope to make the world a better place. Well, thank you, uh, Mayor Fisher, for joining us today, and thank you for adding uh, love to local government. Uh, it's it's the, <laughs> those two words that don't often get said together, but I think it's more important every day, as we see on the national level, that, that we start figuring out how to get love and compassion back into back into our government. So yeah, thank you very and, much. And embrace it and expect that from your public officials. It's not a nice you know, option. It's just who we are. Let's celebrate that. Well, the podcast is called An Honorable Profession. We'll add in an honorable, compassionate profession to it. So uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.